I think there is an unwritten rule in advertising that says that all perfume and cologne ads have to be bizarre. Am I alone in making this observation, or has people taken note of how weird cologne and perfume ads have gotten? And, and it's not like a new thing. I, I think it started with maybe the Calvin Klein ads, maybe not, I don't know, but I remember that's whenever they start became a bit salacious and, you know, you know, and, and, and they've just gotten weird. I've seen ones where, you know, women are emerging from pools of golden paint and, I mean, they're, ju- they're just bizarre. They're just bizarre. And, 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 it, and it crosses the, the ages and, you know, I mean, now it's gone on to these men's, you know, Axe cologne here. Any young men here wearing the Axe cologne were supposed to wear this cologne and girls are going to throw themselves at these young boys. I've tried it. doesn't work, by the way, just, you know, tipping you off there. The old Spice ads of a couple years ago, you know, those actually brought Old Spice, you know, back from the brink of bankruptcy. Actually, that's a neat story there that, I mean, I remember like the old man, old, old Spice man ads from like the 70s and 80s, and then there is just like totally obsolete, and then they came with this really clever ads and just kind of, and now everybody wears Old Spice again. It's so fascinating, uh, just this, this, this fascination we have with scents and smells. It's actually been said by people who've studied it, and, and most people seem to have heard this, that our sense of smell actually uh, is, is most deeply connected with our memories, that these smells uh, are really triggers and evocative of memories that we are going to have. Uh, and, and I had this memory that I can't, and it's true, because what's happening, by the way? I, are we just having fun with spotlights here? So... Fun with spot. Our hands are off, and it's just doing its own thing. All right, we're going to ignore that. It has a mind. By the way, do pray for the service. It is fascinating what goes wrong when we set up. I mean, just it. it I think that, you know the. There's always a, you know, a spiritual, I'm not going to like go you know, weird here on it, but there's a spiritual battle, and sometimes we come up here and things that always work don't work, and apparently a spotlight has a mind of its own here today. Um, what was I saying? I got a lot of things to say. Oh, that, uh, so, so I grew up in the, I, so I, I came of age here in the 90s, the grunge era, and I remember I dated this girl who she wore patchouli oil. So you remember that? You know, that, uh, some people hate it, some people love it. It's one of those smells that you love it or hate. I actually really, really, really like it. But, you know, I cannot, you know, walk by, you know, some hippie, you know, that smells like patchouli now and not instantly, you know, be taken back to college and to this era of my life of dating this girl. It's so amazing. Well, we're going to get into a perfume ad. And, and, and if the hallmark of a great perfume ad is catching our attention, evoking memories, uh, and actually even pulling in hearts and minds, there's one uh, perfume ad that's going to stand hands down above all of the others. One that has endured, uh, so to speak, for 2,000 years. This so-called ad. And I want you to think about this as an ad. What is this promoting? What is this trying to sell you? What is this trying to tell you? As I read this story that is going to invoke sights, sounds, but in particular, smells around this last week of Jesus's life. So let me read this story called The Anointing in Bethany to you, and then we're going to dive right in because there's a lot of stuff that's going to surprise you and delight you, I think. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus's honor, 
Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. And we'll just end our reading of God's word right there because that's enough for us to unpack. This is, of course, Palm Sunday. And it is the beginning of the end of the beginning. It's the beginning of the end. It's the beginning of this end, this last march of Jesus' life that will take him to a cross, that will take him to resurrection. It is the beginning of this end that will actually launch into the new beginning. It is the beginning of this end of this stage that we call the humiliation of Jesus Christ, which ends in the ultimate humiliation on Good Friday. Jesus has entered for us this stage of humiliation of the most profound humility his birth his life and ministry his betrayal and ultimately the greatest humiliation for any and everybody to endure the humiliation of death this is called the humiliation of jesus but this sets the stage for the exaltation the risen and reigning Lord Jesus, the exalted and ascended and returning Lord Jesus, whom we celebrate. So this is the beginning of the end before we get to this new exalted beginning that we live into and we celebrate for all of eternity now. But this is Palm Sunday, and if you were a church kid, you you know all about what's coming I'm just going to get you up to speed maybe a little bit. This is the Palm Sunday. This is the Sunday where Jesus comes into the holy city for this final week of ministry. This is whenever the people gather around him and and, and the crowd lays before him these palm branches, which is the sign of respect and the sign of honor. They're actually laying out the red carpet, so to speak. It said they took their own coats and they put them on the ground. And they're making these shouts, these, these declarations over Jesus. Hosanna, which means save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. They're saying we are willing and ready to name you our king if you lead us. And in particular, many, if not most of them, were desiring a king who would lead them in victory over, of course, the Roman Empire. And the thing about it is that if you really want to understand Jesus, you want to understand who he is and what he was about and his purpose and his mission, you need to dig into this week. And I want to give you that encouragement before we go back into the story. Dig into the events of this week if you want to understand Jesus. All of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who tell us from their perspective the story of the life of of Jesus, you know, about a quarter, actually closer to a third of the materials that we have about Jesus come from this week. They come from the entrance into Jerusalem to his resurrection. 
It's wonderful that we have these four stories. And in these previous chapters, we have these different perspectives. And it's wonderful that they each is giving us kind of these, their, their, their take of what is important, what we need to know, what is so vital to understand about Jesus. But as we get to this week, we see this, we see this focusing because they all then come together and they all end up in the same place. They all end up in the same place, which is going to be a hill called Golgotha, where Jesus will be crucified, into a borrowed tomb given by a man named Joseph of Arimathea to a risen and reigning and resurrected Lord Jesus. And it's a beautiful gift to us that we have these different perspectives, but all of them come together for us, and they say, if you want to understand who Jesus is, you need to understand the events of this week. And what we're going to look to today in the events of this week is this anointing of Jesus. And now this anointing of Jesus, what we might say about it, is that it could be considered a bit controversial. Now before you freak out about that, let's just understand what this controversy is about. There's only really 11 stories that all of the Gospels around Jesus share in common. Again, this is the focusing that each of them have. But this anointing of Jesus is a bit misunderstood, I think, in some ways. It's dealt with in each of the Gospels, but dealt with a bit differently. In fact, what we, what we understand is that there may have been actually two anointings. So Luke addresses an anointing that happens much earlier, actually, in the ministry of Jesus at the house of a Pharisee. And there's a particular offense that happened at that anointing that a woman who makes an offering, an anointing of Jesus' feet, does to reconcile what was going wrong because the Pharisee was not honoring Jesus. But it is Matthew and Mark and John who deal with the anointing during this final week of Jesus' life. Now, here's what is often misunderstood about this, is that Matthew and Mark are very chronological. Matthew and Mark have followed a timeline because they, like Luke, they wanted to give an orderly account of all that unfolded about Jesus. So they put things in the order at which they happened, which we most often think about the events of the Gospels when we read them in the life of Jesus. We want to line them up. That's how we understand and organize and make sense of things, of course. We line them up. And so they place this anointing on about Tuesday of this week. But John tells of this anointing before he gets into anything else in the story of Holy Week. Now, again, the controversy, before we freak out, before we say, ah, oh, the Bible's inconsistent, you know, before we say, ah, oh, you know, we're going to throw it all out, you know, it's out of order, we can't make sense of this, we just kind of need to hit the pause button for a second and remember that this is John's telling of the anointing. And John is writing about the life of Jesus about 40 years later, about 40 years after the events have occurred. And John is well aware that these gospel accounts, these stories written about Jesus are making their way around. And John is, in a sense, filling a gap with his gospel. He's saying, I'm going to give you some theological reflection. So John's gospel gives us the most insight theologically and reflectively back onto the life of of Jesus. So we all not freaking out anymore now? We're starting to understand. So what John has done wonderfully for us is he is in essence saying this. He's saying, as we go into this last week of Jesus' life now, if you want to understand this week, if you want to get this week, 
If you really want to zero in on what is about to unfold, I'm going to help you by taking what is going to happen, an event that happens this week, and I'm going to front load. I'm going to foreshadow. It's in essence a a flash forward in his account because it says when this is when Jesus enters into Bethany where this happens. And so he pulls this story that happens during the week where it happens, and he says, I'm going to pull it to the front. And in essence, he has done now, we'll just put it this way, in essence, he has done the theological heavy lifting for us. He's saying, if you're going to get Jesus, if you're going to get the whole point of his life and his mission, look at everything that is about to happen in these final days of Jesus' life through this lens, through this lens of his anointing. So what is anointing all about? Why is this so important to John? What insight is this going to give us to understand and unlock, perhaps in a profound new way, the life and ministry of Jesus Christ? And, and, and I would probably say this every Sunday, but I'm going to highlight it this Sunday. I hope you never forget <laughs> what the Word of God says, but I get it. You know, yeah, George preached about sloth the other week. It was good, but I don't remember. I, I, I get it. You know, I don't remember what I ate last week, but I know I ate, and I'm alive because of it. You know, God's word is always sustaining and nourishing us. But in a particular way, let me just say, never forget what you're about to learn. Please never forget this insight that John is about to give us. This isn't, I mean, this doesn't come from me. This is like, oh, I I figured, no, 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 no. Never forget this insight that John is about to give us into understanding the life of Jesus Christ. He comes into Bethany where he is anointing. Now, anointing was, of course, a very common practice in the ancient world. Um, let's actually, let, let's take a break. Let's talk about, he, he goes into, before getting the anointing, let, let's set the scene. Sorry, let's, let's do this. He goes into Bethany, and there he's going to gather in a home, and around this home is going to be a family with whom Jesus has had previous experience and has a close ministry with. There at this table, it says, reclining at the table is, in fact, Lazarus. Now, Lazarus, of course was dead, and he is alive again. Whatever you make of Jesus, whether you love him or you hate him, and as will be revealed this week, there are both, you cannot deny the power of this man and the miracle that has happened and that is sitting in front of everybody. It also says that Martha served And we preached actually not too long ago about the story where Martha was serving and Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet, and there's a whole thing there. We don't have to unpack that, but we're not going to gang up on Martha because Martha is doing what Martha is gifted to do and what Martha does best. She is serving, and she's not condemned for it or chastised for it, and we should celebrate her gifts offered unto Jesus. Martha is here serving. And then it says that Mary, Mary came to Jesus with about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, it says, and poured it out on his feet and wiped his feet with her own hair. Now, this act of anointing, this act of anointing is very common in the ancient world. And it was done for a multitude of purposes. The first purpose that we might see and understand what is happening here is that it was a customary uh, action uh, to anoint a guest of honor. In fact, going back to the anointing that Luke tells us about, that is the offense that is being remedied 
that Jesus was the guest of honor in this Pharisee's home, but this Pharisee, as if to try and sort of one-up Jesus, says he was never anointed. He was never honored, never seated as the, as the guest. And in the ancient world, of course, we understand that to go to somebody's home, you had to walk along dusty roads for, for perhaps miles and miles, perhaps for hours and hours in the beating down of the hot sun, and your feet would get dirty. So it was customary to wash a guest's feet, and that's going to become very important this last week of Jesus. And of course, you'd kind of get sweaty, and you didn't have kind of, you know, the perfume and the old spice and the things that we have, but they did have these perfumes and oils, and they would often anoint a guest. It was customary to actually anoint the guest's head with these sort of these little kind of cones of incense or perfume, and they would kind of wash or run down over the guest's hair. And of course, you didn't smell like, let's just be honest. I mean, it's going to smell like a boy's locker room here if you're walking around and gathering in his homes. And it becomes very important to celebrate and honor the guest. And we're going to know this, so this is sort of our foreshadowing. Yes, Jesus is the guest of honor in this gathering, but that is not why he is being anointed, not what John wants us to understand. Now, it's also understood that in the ancient world, anointing was very needed, necessary, and common for the purpose of healing. Once when Jesus is being questioned, you know, how do I inherit eternal life? He's going to give an answer, and he gives an answer. He gives a lot in a lot of different occasions about what we call the greatest command. He says, well, you know the commands, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all, all, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, this guy thinks he's going to justify himself, it says. So he says, well, Jesus, who's my neighbor? Instead of getting into a theological debate, Jesus here goes into narrative mode, which he does so perfectly and so beautifully so often. He says, well, let me tell you a story about a good neighbor. And he tells the story that we often know of as the good Samaritan, right? The shocker is the good guy. The good neighbor in this is somebody who would never be expected. A man is walking along the road. He's on a journey. He is robbed. He is beaten. He is left for dead. A Pharisee comes by, does nothing. A religious leader comes by, does nothing. Then out of the blue, out of nowhere, this Samaritan, the least expected, comes by. And as we read that story and we remember that story, uh, we understand that it says that he took this man, he put him onto his donkey. It says that he anointed his wounds, he washed his wounds with wine and with oil and bandaged them up. So anointing became very necessary and needed for the act of, of healing. And we could say this now about Jesus. Yes, Jesus is going to be betrayed, and he is going to be beaten, and he is going to be beaten fiercely, beaten almost to the point of death, really given just enough life to make it to the cross where he will die in excruciating, the word excruciating coming from the cross and crucifixion, pain. If anybody is going to need an anointing for healing, for the wounds of the body, it is going to be our Lord Jesus Christ. But this isn't why John tells us he's going to be anointed. Well, it's also understood that anointing is very common in the inauguration or the installation of a king. It's actually often used for prophet, priest, and king, most often by the priests for the king. When we go back and remember from, from, from uh, just centuries before this, of course, that a young man was chosen to be king over Israel. 
And so the prophet Samuel goes to a young David, and when he is told to go to David by the Lord, it says, take with you a horn, a flask of oil, and anoint him to be king over all of Israel. And so Samuel anoints David king. And we know from this story that the crowd was ready to install and inaugurate Jesus as their king. They, of course, were hoping for this king who might lead them to victory over their oppressors of the Roman Empire. And, of course, what we can say is that Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. But what John is telling us isn't so much that Jesus is being anointed as king. We could also add on to this, of course, that this anointing gives us a special and unique insight into the character of one of the disciples, Judas. That he gives us this insight, and John gives us, again, the most theological reflection on the life of Jesus and on Judas in particular. And he takes this as an opportunity to quote when Judas says, what sounds so good, of course, you know, all this money could have been, all this perfume could have been sold and given to the poor, which sounds so good and sounds so Christian, of course. But this is his insight to us to say, that's, 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 that's not why he did it. He, he, he kept the money bag and he helped himself to it. He was a thief and a traitor. That's just an aside, and that's not the main reason why John tells us about this anointing. The reason he tells us about this anointing, of course, comes from Jesus's own words. Whenever she is chastised for this act of extravagance, this prodigal, in the particular sense of prodigal meaning extravagant, meaning lavish, meaning wasteful, this prodigal act of worship that she has offered to him. And they come together and they, they, they say, oh, it could have been sold and given to the poor. And she says, do not rebuke her. Don't gang up on her. It was intended that she should save this for the day of my, and here it is revealed for us, the day of my burial. And it's at this point, you know, if we were to kind of, you know, make a movie scene about this, uh, you know, and, and, and I always think about this, <laughs> I don't know why, you know, if we were like Mr. Monopoly and we had the monocle in our one eye and we were so shocked and we, what? And the monocle would, I don't know why I always think that, but I always think of like, what? You know, the people that are so proper, you know, we should be like, my burial, we should be like, what? My burial? Jesus, you are the most alive person we have ever known. Jesus, we are with you because you have the words of life. Jesus, we are with you because wherever you go, life happens. Jesus, we are with you because whenever the sick come up to you on the brink of their own death and burial, you bring them back to life. Whenever the people who are possessed and oppressed and living in tombs come around you, you bring them back to the living and to life. Jesus, whenever the blind are around you in living in the darkness of a kind of death of sight and engagement, you bring them back. Jesus, your burial, your burial, this should be shocking for all of us. And yet, it shouldn't be. Because Jesus has been alluding to, pointing to, leading up to this his entire 
time in ministry. In fact, as they gather, they're gathering, in a sense, in a bit of secrecy because the word is on the street from the religious leaders. If you can give us an opportunity to get Jesus, help us out. We are trying to capture him. The disciples are sneaking around, lurking around, trying not to be caught. Jesus has told them point blank that he, the Son of Man, is going to be betrayed and handed over. He will be put on trial. He will be falsely convicted. He will be beaten. He will be crucified. And he will die. And he's saying that he is me. This is about to happen. My hour has come. And yet it seems that nobody has put it together or they are unwilling to put it together because they are still imposing their own desires, their own hopes, their own dreams for who this Jesus will be. And let us never discount our own ability to impose on Jesus, to impose on God as we impose on others what we would have them do or be for us. They seem to be unable or unwilling to grasp the reality to which Jesus has been pointing them, all of them unwilling all of them unable, all of them missing it, except for Mary. Mary, who is the one alone that seems to be able to take time at the feet of Jesus, loving Him, embracing Him, accepting Him, and understanding Him in a way that nobody else has. We have to love Mary for what she does. No one else was willing or able to do. She is the one who comes in and christens the Christ. She is the one who christens the Christ. All along, they have been calling him the Christ, the anointed one, and yet she is the one who gets to do it. We need to think about this, and this is why I don't want you to forget this. This is why I want to front load this Easter in this way for you, and this is why I want you to never forget about this. We call Jesus Christ. And sometimes we think that's his last name. A lot of people actually make that mistake. Jesus Christ, that was his name, right? No, he is Jesus the Christ. And he is Jesus the Christ because he is the anointed one. To be the Christ is to be the anointed one. We still remember this, though. Even in our time and in our culture, we still christen things. We anoint things. Whenever we're about to launch a ship, you know, we, we, we take that bottle of champagne and we, and we, you know, you whack it on. We, like I've ever done this. Like I have a yacht. Thank you. Yes, I've actually anointed my, my yacht. You know? No, but you know, we seem to have this image of this, this ship is about to set sail and we christen it. And a lot of people in other uh, faith traditions, they will christen, they will anoint this baby. Here we are all calling Jesus the Christ and yet we seem to have this capacity to forget that he is the Christ because he is the anointed one. And what was he anointed for? He was anointed for burial. He's anointed for burial. 
Is he the guest of honor and should he have the seat of honor in our homes and in our lives? Absolutely, but that is not why he is anointed. Is he the healer? Does he have the words of life? Can he rescue us from the the death of sin and the brokenness of our world? Absolutely, he is the healer, but that is not why he is anointed. Is he the king of kings and the Lord of lords? Absolutely, but that is not why he is anointed on this time and this occasion. He is anointed because he is going to die, and he is going to die for our sins. That is why he is the Christ. That is why he is the anointed one. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one because he is the only one who is able, who is capable, who can do it. We call ourselves Christians, right? I hope we call ourselves, but I'll just take a pause on that. If you are not, I pray that you would understand and embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior and as the Christ today. But every time we call ourselves a Christian, we are, remember, we are calling ourselves little Christ. We are calling ourselves anointed ones. And if we are anointed by Jesus, if we are walking in his steps or living like he does, we have anointed ourselves for our own burial. And we call ourselves the Christians. We are saying, anoint me, Jesus, for death because I want to die to my old life and I want to come to new life in you. I want to die to the old and I want to be raised with life in you. I want to die to the sin that has ensnared and held me captive. I want to be raised to new life in you. It is Mary who has the honor of fulfilling what had to be done. If he is Jesus, the Christ, he had to be anointed. And if he was going to be anointed, he was being anointed for burial. And Mary has the honor of doing it. She takes this pint of pure nard worth about a year's wages, it says, and she lavishly, she extravagantly, she pours it out on his feet and wipes his feet with her own hair. This is, by the way, this is the kind of act that can ruin a man and a woman's reputation. But praise be to God, she does it in this prodigal act of worship for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. She anoints him for his burial. And friends, Matthew and Mark then give us this insight. They give us this wonderful, beautiful insight into this whole occasion. At the tale of this, John doesn't tell it because John just fulfills it. But Matthew and Mark give us the insight. It says, wherever, I tell you that wherever the gospel is going to be preached, this woman, what she has done, her story will be told in honor of her. Friends, thanks be to God, we have done it. We have remembered and told her act of prodigal, extravagant, lavish worship for our Lord Jesus Christ this day. But more I want you to think about and understand that each and every time we tell the story of Jesus the Christ, we are telling her story. Because her story is his story. And his story is our story. When we call ourselves Christians, when we call ourselves followers of Christ. Every time we call ourselves a Christian, we too are calling ourselves anointed ones. Every time we call ourselves a Christian, we are saying we've been anointed in his burial so that we could be raised in his life. And so, my friends, I want to tell you, I want to invite you, I want to I encourage you this week. Let's do it. Let's, let's do this this week. Let us be like Mary and not miss an opportunity to worship our Lord and Savior in the most extravagant, in the most lavish, 
in perhaps the most prodigal ways we know how. I want to encourage you this coming week to throw caution to the wind, as Mary does. To throw, perhaps, reputation to the wind, as Mary does. To, to, to throw social graces and norms to the wind. And to say, like Mary, what would it be like if I had the opportunity to not miss it, to show the most lavish, extravagant, the most prodigal act of worship that I can pour out for my Lord and Savior, for the one who died for me so that I might live? What could I do to pour out worship on him? Maybe it is giving a year's wages. Maybe it is pouring out perfume at his feet. Maybe it is walking across the street to tell your neighbor about the love of Jesus Christ that has transformed your life. Maybe it is about reaching across the aisle to make amends with somebody that you've had a broken relationship with for days, weeks, ages, or years. Maybe it is reaching out to an estranged loved one, a child, a neighbor, a friend who is deeply in need of the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Maybe it is an extravagant gift poured out for the work of the church, for the work of mission, for the work of Christ in our world. Friends, I don't know what it is, but as we come to the table here in just a moment, as we come to this table where we remember Jesus gave the most extravagant act of offering and sacrifice that any of us could ever imagine, that he poured out not a pint of pure nard, that he poured out not something worth a year's worth of wages, that he poured out his own life for us so that we might live. What might I pour out for him? Jesus, you allowed your body to be broken. What can I give, even if it breaks the bank, to show my worship and devotion and my love for you? What can you do this week to be like Mary, to not miss the opportunity, but to pour it all out? and worship to him. I invite the band to come forward, and they're going to get ready to lead us in worship as we now prepare our hearts to come to the table. Will you pray with me, friends? Lord Jesus Christ, as we prepare our hearts now to come to your table, we come here in recognition of the great sacrifice that you made on our behalf. In fact, we know that it is the greatest sacrifice that anyone could ever give, the greatest act of love that any one person could do for another. It is the act of laying down your own life, but your laying down your life goes beyond because we know that this sacrifice doesn't just demonstrate for us love, but it provides for us the atoning sacrifice, the payment for our sins that have separated us from a holy God and allows us to step into your burial and thus your resurrection and then your new life. And so, Lord Jesus Christ, we give you thanks for this celebration of union with you, our communion as the body of Christ, at the table that you have prepared for us. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night that he would be betrayed this coming week, whenever they gathered to celebrate the Passover, Jesus pronounced to them that this would be a Passover like no other. 
That all the Passovers that came before, while they were good, while they were necessary, while they were needed and a part of the plan of God, they were ultimately the part of the plan of God that was going to lead to fulfillment in Jesus' own sacrifice. And so Jesus, the Lamb of God, was going to lay down His life once and for all, the final sacrifice for our sins. And so when He lifted up the bread and He broke it, He said something that would have shocked them when He said, this now is my body that is broken for you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And in a similar way, after supper, he took the cup and he lifted it up, saying, this cup is now the new covenant which is sealed in my blood that is shed for you. Take and drink and do this in remembrance of me. For every time you eat of this bread and you drink of this cup, you will proclaim the saving death of our risen Lord until he comes again. And so, people of God, and I want to invite you to come and to take and to eat and to drink and to remember the sacrifice of your Lord and your Savior, Jesus the Christ the anointed one, anointed to die the death that was intended for us, but to die the death that provides the door to eternal life for all who call on Him as Savior and Lord. Friends, we invite all who call upon Jesus as Savior and Lord to come and celebrate at this table. If for any reason you feel you can't come, you will receive no judgment here. We only ask that you sit respectfully and worship God but again, I do want to emphasize that all who call on Jesus as Savior and Lord, who want to have more in Him and His abiding presence in your life, to come and to gather at this table. I'm going to invite my friends, the elders, and some of the leaders of our church to come forward, and they're going to create three stations in the center and on the two aisles. I invite you to come forward and to first take the bread, the body broken for you, and to eat and then to take the cup that we will provide and to drink. And then you can take the cup and you can just, you know, take it to your seat with you and put it in the little cup holder there or take it with you on your way out and, and, and throw it out. But these are the gifts of God for the people of God. And you, the people of God, are all invited to come and share in this feast.